All right. Good morning again. Welcome to Cross Point. Uh, as I mentioned before, my name's Eric. We've never got the chance to meet before. Thank you guys all so much for being here with us this morning. If you're just coming in, we've been spending better part of this whole year together looking at the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is a book in the beginning parts of the New Testament. It's written by a man named Luke, primarily to a man named Theophilus. And what Luke's trying to do is give Theophilus confidence in what he's already heard about how God is fulfilling his plans to renew cultures and places and lives through Jesus Christ. And the passage we're going to look at today, it's kind of at this crossroads moment in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul, who we've been looking at for the last few weeks, uh, is coming off of right here, ending his third and final missionary journey. He's about to leave the city and the people that he spent the last three years of his life with. And so open up your Bibles, look with me at Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 17 through 37, as we see his parting words to the elders of this church that he's just spent the last three years of his life pouring into. Starting in verse uh, 17, Luke says, From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived with you the whole time I was with you. From the first day uh, I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing from the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared, he says, to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me, that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves, Paul says, and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are being sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions, and everything I did, I showed you by this kind of hard work. We must help the weak. Remember the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. And then Luke says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down, with all of them and prayed, and they all wept and embraced him and kissed him. 
Uh, two years ago, a team of researchers from the University College in London did a study that basically confirmed what we already know to be true, that human beings, you and me, oftentimes choose to take the path of least resistance in life. To do this, uh, they looked at the way we make decisions, and they painted this analogy at the start of their study. They said, imagine you are out at an apple orchard, um, which we don't really have here in Florida. So imagine you're at a strawberry patch, like I was with my family a few weeks ago. Okay, now, they say, in the midst of this sea of strawberries, how do you decide which ones to pick? Normally, they said, when people would research this, they'd look at how we make decisions based off things like size and color and shape. So in this instance, you and I would gravitate towards always picking the biggest, ripest strawberries we can find. But this team of researchers found out there's another aspect of the decision-making process that's far more simpler that we don't always factor in. Resistance. In other words, it's not always the biggest or the ripest strawberries we pick, it's sometimes the easiest ones. Which, if you're like me, makes a lot of sense, because when I went strawberry picking a couple weeks ago, I've got my five-month-old son in this arm, who's covered in suntan lotion, and it's about to slip out of my arms if I squeeze him any tighter. And then in the other arm, I'm balancing that way too awkwardly wide basket they give you, and at that point, like, whatever is immediately in front of me, those are the strawberries I'm getting. Now, in the course of the study to prove this, they put people in front of this screen of moving dots that were going really in no particular direction. And they told them to push a lever, one of two levers, to decide which direction the dots were moving in, the left or the right. Now, what the people didn't realize is one of these levers was weighted heavier than the other. And without even realizing it, people began to push the lever that was easier to move, saying, this is the direction that I think the dots are moving in, when in fact they were going in no particular direction whatsoever. So in a sense, they proved, through a lot of money and time, what we already know to be true, that you and me oftentimes choose to take the path of least resistance. A lot of times that's a smart thing to do, right? Yet when we look at the book of Acts, Oftentimes, we see the church being forced to take the path of most resistance in their mission. Paul House, who's an American biblical scholar, uh, says this, The book of Acts has no purpose, no plot, no structure, and no history without suffering. In other words, we can't fully grasp the message of the book of Acts and what Luke is trying to convey into it and how it speaks to our lives today, if we don't see and experience the suffering and the opposition that the early church went through to spread the gospel. It's as Paul House would uh, continue on to say, certainly the gospel moves, but never without pain. And it's this suffering and opposition of the gospel that we see the Christians in the book of Acts face that I think is potentially very disorienting to you and me here today, and disorienting to the people Luke was writing to. You see, my bet is, if you're like me, then this suffering and opposition that we see Christians face all throughout the book of Acts can kind of play with your mind a little bit. If you're a Christian here today, it can be disorienting because I think this suffering and opposition they experience challenges and plays with some of the common categories through which we understand suffering. 
if you're not a Christian here today, I think the suffering and opposition that the church goes through is disorienting for you because as you kind of weigh the cost and benefits for following Christianity and the seeming pain that the church goes through, you can easily think, why would any sane person follow this religion? And if one of those groups represents you, or maybe some other group, Luke has something in here to say to you and me about the suffering, the purpose of suffering and opposition in our lives for the spread of the gospel and more. And in particular, I think there's really three things Luke wants us to see in Paul's speech to these elders from the church of Ephesus. I think he wants us to see the pattern, the preparation, and the path of suffering and opposition that the church experiences. So first, the pattern of suffering. In these first few verses here, we see the pattern of suffering and opposition that the Apostle Paul experiences in starting this Ephesian church. So it starts by kind of looking at Paul's past. In verse 18, Paul starts off by reminding them. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. That from the first day I came to the province of Asia until now, he goes on to say in verse 19, that I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Now, why were these people particularly opposing him? Well, he says in verse 21, just below that, he says, because I went on declaring to both the Jews and the Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, this is what we've seen as we've looked at the Apostle Paul so far. As we've read through the book of Acts, we've seen Paul beaten, imprisoned, humiliated, driven out of cities. The pattern of Paul's past ministry in the book of Acts up until now has been one that's been marked by experiencing intense suffering and opposition to start new churches. And yet this won't just be the pattern of Paul's past. This is also going to be the pattern of his future. In verse 22, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Think about this. Paul is leaving the city of Ephesus that he's just dedicated three years of his life to. And all he can say in the midst of that is, I have no clue what I'm going into next. The only thing I know is that wherever I go, it's going to be hard. That wherever I go, prison and hardships will await me. In other words, that the pattern of his past will continue to be now the pattern of his future, of suffering and experiencing opposition to start new churches. So why would he do this? Well, he tells us in verse 24, he says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task. The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. In other words, what Paul is saying here 
is that he's willing to experience and face not only prisons and hardships, but if need be, give up his entire life for the sake of fulfilling the call that Jesus gave him back in Acts chapter 9 to suffer for and proclaim his name to all the nations. This is the calling that Paul is saying will continue to be the pattern of his ministry, suffering opposition to spread the gospel and start new churches. And I think this right here must have been, to a certain level, disorienting to Theophilus, the man that Luke's writing this book to. Remember, Luke is writing the book of Acts 30 to 40 years after these events occurred. And and think about this. He's writing the book to give Theophilus confidence in what he's already heard about how God is fulfilling his plans of salvation through Jesus Christ. And yet in the midst of that, the suffering and the opposition that Christ's people will face is only going to escalate from the book of Acts. And so how would someone like Theophilus reconcile in his head what he's heard about God fulfilling his plans of salvation through Jesus and the pain and the hardship that Jesus' people are facing. And it's not only Theophilus who has to reconcile this. It's you and me too. You see, Paul's pattern of experiencing suffering and opposition is going to be also the pattern of the Ephesian church, as we're going to read about. And if you're a Christian here today, this should be the pattern of your life as well. Now, I want to be careful for a second here. When I talk about suffering for being a Christian here in America, all right, what we experience here in Orlando doesn't come close to what the church in the book of Acts, to what many Christians in different places around the world experience in the name of Jesus. However, all right, this shouldn't mean that we should expect to be immune from it. Right? As we've seen in the book of Acts, the gospel challenges and at some level confronts something unique in every particular culture it engages with. And so that means if you are here today and you're a Christian, there should be some place in your life where you experience some sort of relational or social cost because of how you live and because of what you believe. And I think it's this cost, this suffering and opposition that can be disorienting for us too, but for different reasons than for a man like Theophilus. I think it's because it challenges the common way that as Christians we view suffering in our own lives. So the Bible describes three types of suffering that people commonly experience. So there's deserved suffering, which is just the result of your own personal sin. There's innocent suffering, which is the result of someone else's sin against you. And then there's a third type, righteous suffering, which is the result of you doing what was right. And it's this third category here, the righteous suffering, that we're seeing demonstrated in the pattern of the Apostle Paul here. But here's the thing. I think oftentimes as Christians, we can view all suffering in life through the lens of that first category, that suffering must be a result of me doing something wrong. And so when we encounter 
suffering and opposition in our own ways for the spread of the gospel, I think it can pull out through this lens a couple different reactions in us. I think first, it can make us cynical because we think, God, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I, I, I don't get this. I thought I was doing the right thing. Why did me, living as a Christian in my workplace, keep me back from getting that promotion? Why does me trying to spread the gospel in my neighborhood cost me relationships and friendships? Why does me trying to talk about what we did at church this morning to my non-Christian family member cause tensions and fights? This isn't fair. So it can make us cynical. I think it can also make us despair. Because when we encounter this opposition, we think, I must have done something wrong. I must have messed something up along the way. I must just be an inadequate witness to this message. Then thirdly, I think it can also make us angry sometimes. Because we think someone is trying to desecrate in that moment our Christian golden age that we've been living in, when in reality, all we've done is mistaken biblical Christianity for cultural Christianity. And yet what Luke's showing us here in the pattern of suffering that we see in the Apostle Paul's ministry is that suffering for the spread of the gospel that Paul experienced, that the Ephesian church will experience, that you and I, if you're a Christian, will experience, is actually our calling as Christians. And so in the midst of that, to not be cynical, to not despair, but instead expect to encounter it. All right, so first Luke shows us the pattern of suffering But next he shows us the preparation for suffering. In other words, if in these first words here, uh, Paul lays out the pattern of suffering and opposition in his ministry to the Ephesians to start their church, now he's going to show them the preparation for suffering and opposition that these elders need to make in their ministry to each other to strengthen their church. Um, Because here's the thing. The Apostle Paul knows Just because we expect something to happen doesn't mean we're always ready for it. So, for instance, there is a black snake that from time to time patrols the front entryway of our apartment, terrorizing my wife and I. Now, here's the thing, all right? I grew up in upstate New York. We don't really do snakes up there. We don't do really reptiles of any kind up there. So, I am deathly afraid of snakes. I guarantee you, I'm way more afraid of them than they are of me. And what happens is, from time to time, my wife will come inside, and she'll tell me that she saw the snake, and instantly, I am stricken with terror, I break out into a cold sweat, and from there on out, when I walk out of the door, I'm like walking, kind of stomping my feet, or I'll peer around the corner before I do, or I'll take my dog with me, and I'll kind of let her go out first to kind of test it before I walk out there. But then what happens? A few days go by, snake isn't spotted, I forget about it. Next thing you know, I'm just breezing out the front door, not even thinking about the snake, until he comes out of hiding, terror strikes again, and I'm caught completely unprepared. Now, just like I wax and wane in my preparation to experience the snake who's waiting for me outside my front door. The Apostle Paul knows that the Ephesians, that you and me, we can wax and wane in our preparation to encounter suffering and opposition in our calling as Christians. 
And so what he does here, starting in verse 28, is he shifts from kind of teaching them through the pattern and uh, example of his own life to now directly teaching them these elders, about how they're to prepare for this suffering and opposition, not from a place of fear, but in one sense, these words, um, you know, they're given to elders of the church, which are a team of men, ordained men, who are given the specific calling to shepherd the church. But I think within these words here, there's something that if you're a Christian here today, you can embody to some degree in your own life. And this preparation that Paul gives them, it starts first with this internal watchfulness. Look down in verse 28. He says to them, keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. In other words, this internal watchfulness, it begins first with ourselves. Paul is telling these elders, these leaders of the church, you can't be prepared to experience any sort of suffering and opposition if you're not first prepared in your own lives, which is something that we can all experience too. And then he says in verse 30 that even from your own number, men will arise and they'll distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. In other words, that this internal watchfulness, it's got to start first with a preparation of our own hearts, but then it's got to look outward into our own church to have for these leaders this gracious vigilance to protect the teaching of the church. So this preparation, it starts with this internal watchfulness, but then it also carries this external watchfulness. Paul says in verse 29, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you, and they won't spare the flock. Wolves in the New Testament were heretical, false teachers who'd come in from the outside, and they would lead people astray from the teaching of the gospel. And so Paul, because of that, tells them in verse 31, so be on guard. Remember that for three years, the whole time he was with them, I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. In other words, Paul is telling these leaders, but also to you and me here, don't give up. When you experience this suffering and opposition that's going to come, engage with it. Because he says in verse 28, God bought this church with the blood of his own son. It means that much to him. And what Paul is really describing here is the paradox that we see of the church in the book of Acts. That they experience this remarkable external growth in the midst of internal opposition, and they experience this tremendous internal growth despite external opposition. And what we can see here in Paul's suffering and opposition to start their church, and the elders, these Ephesian elders, suffering in opposition that they'll experience to strengthen their church is that this is something you and I should be prepared for as well. Paul is saying to these elders and to you and me here, not just to expect to experience some sort of suffering and opposition in our calling as Christians, but to engage with it. Be prepared and engage with this opposition to the spreading of the gospel. And I think this, too, can be very disorienting to some of us here today, uh, but for different reasons. You see, if in the pattern 
of suffering and opposition that we saw in Paul's life. I think it challenges maybe some of the ways commonly as Christians that we view suffering. I think here in the preparation that Paul gives to these elders, to you and me, to not back down from it, but to be prepared, to engage with it continually, I think this challenges some of the modern ways that our culture views suffering. Um, One of the baseline cultural narratives that you'll hear today is that the meaning and purpose of your life is to experience and get as much happiness as you can. But that's not entirely true. Uh, Robert Lustig, who's a professor at UC San Francisco, he's a doctor, uh, wrote a really interesting book called The Hacking of the American Mind, where he essentially says that actually, as a culture, a shift has happened where now we're not living for the purpose of happiness, but actually the purpose and meaning of our lives as we're told it today is pleasure. Now, happiness and pleasure are two very different things, neurologically, emotionally, spiritually. Pleasure is based off of dopamine in the brain. It's short-term. It's experiential. It's focused on receiving happiness, though, which is one and the same with joy in the Bible. It's through serotonin in the brain. It's long-term, it's communal, it's focused on giving. Now, if the purpose of life, as we've been told, has shifted from pursuing happiness to pursuing pleasure, then that changes in some very real ways how you and I think about engaging ongoing ways with suffering and opposition in our lives. Because here's the thing, it's possible to have joy in suffering not possible to have pleasure in suffering, meaning that pleasure, or suffering rather, is now pointless in our lives. This is why I think some of us struggle with the suffering and the opposition in this passage that we see, because Paul's telling these elders, he's telling you and me to not just expect it, but to be prepared to have this ongoing engagement with it, to not back down against it, but to fight against it. And I think this is incredibly difficult for us to hear sometimes because our modern culture is shaping us to view suffering as pointless because it's in the way of me experiencing more and more pleasure in my life. And so we think, why would any sane person follow a religion that's calling you to a life of suffering? And here's the thing. Even one of the biggest opponents of Christianity for the last 300 years can spot the faults in this line of thinking. Friedrich Nietzsche, who is a German philosopher, widely known for being an intense critic of Christianity, once said that people, we can live with suffering. He said what we can't live with is meaningless suffering. And yet meaningless suffering is all that our modern thought has to offer us. So is it working? Is it helping you make better sense of your life? What about Christianity? Is the suffering and the opposition that we see Paul, that we see the church that you and I experience, is it all pointless? Is the suffering and opposition that Paul encountered in his ministry to the Ephesians to start their church, and that Paul is saying these elders need to be prepared to face in their ministry to each other to strengthen their church, and that you and I, all experience in our own ways to a certain degree in our lives, is God using it for anything purposeful or is it just meaningless too? 
And in order to see this, we need to look at our last point here. We've looked at the pattern, the preparation. Lastly, we need to see the path of suffering and opposition of the church. And what we find in these last few verses here is that if we follow Paul in this closing passage, Luke leads us right along this path where we find the true purpose, the true meaning of the suffering and the opposition that Christians face for the sake of the gospel. And it starts by looking at Paul's path. Look down with me in verse 32 in your Bibles. Paul says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which Paul says can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. You see, up until this point, Paul, he's been as kind of a passionate pastor, giving them this somber warning of what they have to expect and that they need to prepare for. But now as he closes, he's encouraging them here to press on. And he does it by placing them and leaving them, handing these elders over under the care of God, placing them under the word of his grace, which is another way of saying the gospel of God's grace, which Paul tells them can build them up, can strengthen them, but then also give them this inheritance of, in God's holy people, which most likely means them sharing in the blessings of God's kingly rule over all of his people. In other words, after this sober warning that Paul's been giving them up until now, he's encouraging them by pointing them to Jesus. Not just in word, but in deed. Because in the next few verses here, Paul then reminds them of his own experience of Christ-likeness in their lives that they saw amongst him. And then in verse 36, after all this, Luke says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And Paul leaves now. This church he spent the last three years of his life life with. Onward to his path to Jerusalem. And in looking in Paul's path here, Luke is leading us down another path. Jesus' path. You see, in the book of Acts, Luke oftentimes will highlight something one of the apostles does with something Jesus has done to draw our focus and attention back to Jesus. And here, in this moment, in Paul's turn to Jerusalem and his eventual arrest and death that will happen because of it, Luke is mirroring in this passage in the verses just after that in more ways than could be coincidental. Jesus' turn and Luke 9 to Jerusalem and his eventual arrest and death. Now, why would Luke do that? I think there's probably a couple reasons, but one of the big ones is this. The key way that Luke describes Jesus is as the suffering servant par excellence. This is a theme that we see all throughout the Bible. In Genesis, Abel suffered and was killed by his brother Cain for being righteous. God's people entering the promised land suffered and experienced opposition from the nations around them for being righteous. King David, Psalm 22, poetically describes suffering and being crushed for being righteous. The prophets in Israel suffered and experienced opposition were killed by their own people at times for being righteous. Yet in all those instances of righteous suffering, all it could do was condemn another person, not save somebody. 
But in Jesus Christ, God comes into our world. And he lives a more righteous life than Abel, the prophets, David ever imagined possible. He experiences opposition from his own people that he came for. And in his death on the cross, he experiences a deeper misery and pain than was ever imagined possible. Suffering in himself the punishment that our sins deserved. Because as the Bible describes it, apart from Christ, none of us are neutral in this matter. We've all opposed Jesus too. And in the climax of this moment, in Luke 23, the man who is crucifying Jesus to the cross looks at him and he praises God and he says, surely this was a righteous person. I mean, I mean think about this for just a second. The righteous God of the universe comes down and he suffers not just under the people who opposed him, but he suffers for the people who opposed him. He cries out on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This was unlike anything that had ever been seen before. In Greek mythology that was around this time, you'd see sometimes a hero righteously suffering on behalf of a friend. Jesus does something entirely different. He comes and he suffers for people who opposed him to make them his friends. You see, this was God's pattern all along. This was the surprising twist in the story of humanity. That the righteous God would come and suffer to save unrighteous people. And it's here that this gives purpose not just to the righteous suffering that we experience as Christians, but to all suffering in our lives. Listen to how John Stott, the great British uh, minister, describes how the cross speaks to our suffering. He says, I can never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He says, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully for the statue of Buddha. His legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, a ghost of a smile playing round his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of this world. But each time, after a while, he says, I've had to turn away. And in my mind, I've turned instead to that twisted, lonely, tortured figure on the cross Nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow beating from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. This is the God for me, he says. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, of tears and death, and when he did, he suffered for us. See, when we follow the path that Luke is leading us on, we find the true righteous sufferer and the purpose of it. We see that the suffering and the exaltation of Christ for our sins became the surprising way that God would save you and me. That Jesus' righteous suffering was in fact a redemptive suffering. And it's in this that we also see God's purpose for the suffering and the opposition of his church. You see, when we look at Paul's pattern in his life, 
and we look at the lives of the Ephesian elders, and we look at me and you and the suffering that we experience and the opposition we experience for the spread of the gospel, we see the purpose that God has in it for us. Because you see, I think a lot of times we think that the spread of the gospel and the strengthening of the church, it's going to come through this triumphant church who's fighting against and conquering their community and their culture. But what we see instead here is that it happens through a church that experiences suffering and opposition that gets pushed to the margins at times, but that in that doesn't get cynical or discouraged, also doesn't revel in it, have this weird like fixation on it, but instead expects it, is prepared to engage in it, and presses on, being reassured through Luke's words here that God is now accomplishing his purposes now through his suffering witnesses as we proclaim our suffering and exalted Savior. If you're a Christian here today, follow the path. Follow the path that Luke is leading you on straight to our suffering Savior and let that encourage you to embrace in your life the pattern and the preparation of suffering and opposition for the sake of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian here today, look at Jesus on the cross. See him suffering there in your place and in him find a companion in your own suffering and someone who can give purpose to what seems purposeless in your life. So this is what we have a chance to do right now. We're going to spend some time right now in these moments singing, uh, praying. There'll be members of prayer team, uh, of our prayer team in our corners here. Um, and we're going to spend some time, most of all, encountering this suffering Savior in the Lord's Supper together. The Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 describes what we're about to do this way. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, this meal that we're about to eat right now, this is the first way that you and I are strengthened to encounter the suffering and the opposition for the gospel that we will experience as Christians. Because when we come forward here in this meal and we take this bread and we dip it in the juice and we eat this together, we are following the path right to Christ's suffering, which became the surprising way that God would save you and me. And as we eat this meal, remembering and proclaiming what Jesus has done for us, the Holy Spirit, by faith, lifts us up into fellowship with our suffering and exalting Savior, taking the things of Christ and making them ours to strengthen our faith for the suffering that we'll experience. 
This is a meal that we're about to partake in right now that the Spirit works into the heart of someone who has faith. And so if that isn't you today, we'd ask that you would withhold from coming up uh, and partaking the elements, but instead, don't let this time pass by. Instead, think about the suffering that Christ willingly, gladly went through for you. But if you are a Christian, please, there'll be servers on either side in just a moment. Come forward, eat and drink deeply in the grace of God for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news that we can see in this passage that in the midst of the suffering and the opposition that you call your church to experience, you have a purpose in it. That just like you had a purpose in the suffering of your own son, you are now using the suffering of your own witnesses to fulfill your purposes as we proclaim in word and deed our suffering and exalted Savior who came to this world and who gladly laid down his life for us. We pray now through this meal that you would press this word into our hearts, that you would use your spirit to strengthen our faith and to send us out from here encouraged, knowing that we are deeply loved by a righteous God. Amen.